I want to pray for today's passage because it, um, it has some truths to it that are not immediately graspable. You have to think. But because when you start talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the, the beauty and the obedience that existed, um, it's harder for us to understand. So if you would pray with me that God would kind of gird up our minds to understand this, I think hopefully you'll find it encouraging towards a greater, a greater worship of God and particularly Jesus Christ, his son. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this word that you have given to us today. And Lord, I ask that you would give us sharpness of mind to understand transcendent truths that, that make our paltry little ideas day after day seem so small and inane. Help us to be overwhelmed by your greatness and mystery, that it would move us to want to be committed, undying, to follow you regardless of where you would lead us. Father, I I desire that Christ would be revealed greatly today to these people so that being a disciple seems as if the only right way. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The question I want to raise to you for you to think about is, why has America been so effective at making decisions for Jesus when we have not been so effective at making disciples of Jesus? So in other words, America is great in terms of this statistical increase of people that will claim some degree of faith in Jesus And yet their lives seem absolutely discordant with what they believe. And that doesn't cause anybody any problem. John Stott, a a recently deceased theologian, has spoken for the evangelical church for years, has written strange and disturbing paradox of the contemporary Christian situation. We have experienced enormous statistical growth without corresponding growth in discipleship. God is not pleased, he writes with superficial discipleship. Or James Houston, another evangelical thinker, writes that we're destroying Christianity in the marketeering of Christianity. In other words, we have to reconcile why so many people want to decide for Jesus and so few disciples of Jesus. And I think the answer is going to lie in what we celebrate today in terms of Palm Sunday. You know, Palm Sunday is that day on the church calendar, which is a week prior to the Easter celebration. It commemorates the day that Jesus Christ uh, enters Jerusalem for his last time of his last week of earthly ministry, and he comes on a donkey, and, and, and the people are very excited. They're following Jesus. They're, they're just proclaiming to him that he's king, that he's great. I mean, it is worship of Christ. Even the Pharisees told Jesus, stop the people from worshiping you. And this is a huge day. And you remember, the crowds were unusually large because Jesus had raised Lazarus just a little bit before in Bethany, which is only two miles outside of Jerusalem. And so the crowds were huge. The guy raised somebody from the dead. They're proclaiming all kinds of things about him. And here's the greatest irony. Within five days of all this jubilation over Jesus Christ, within five days they're shouting to crucify him. I mean, everything went sideways. I mean, it was incredible. Within five days from jubilation over the greatness of Christ as king, we now want to hang him on a cross. We want to crucify him. 
And I think this passage helps us understand how things can slide. It helps to differentiate between what does it mean to decide for Jesus and what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Huge difference. My prayer today is that those of you who are striving to be a disciple will be comforted in the word. And those of you who are confused over what discipleship and decisionism is will be convicted by the word. And I've prayed that we wouldn't get those things crossed. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 20. And sorry, I read the bulletin. Uh, John chapter 12, and we'll read 20 to 26. I know in heaven, by the way, there will be a perfect bulletin. I'm convinced of that. There will be. You probably will never see one if you come to this church for long, but that's more than, yeah. Uh, 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. All kinds of debate about that. You know, was Philip scared? Why didn't Philip want to go? Uh, interesting, though, Andrew, every time he's mentioned in Scripture, he's always bringing someone to Jesus. May we be like the Andrews of this world. And Jesus answered them. So they come to Jesus, and Jesus answers them and says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so what is the scene here? Well, these Greeks, or the Greeks, a word for Greek could be Gentile. These Gentiles have come to see Jesus. A Gentile worshiping would be what was called a God-fearer. They believed in the God of Israel, but they weren't yet committed to go all the way to becoming a proselyte, and that required circumcision. So it demanded a bit of a a commitment there. And so these were God-fearers, and they're at this feast. Now, what are they doing here? Why are they seeking Jesus? Well, most scholars would see there to be a division between verse 19 in your scripture and verse 20. In verse 19, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. In 20, it says, but now some Greeks. There seems to be a two-day interval, at least according to Mark 14, that Jesus enters Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. If you remember that story, Jesus goes in and he gets a quarter whips and he drives out the money changers, and the traders from that outer court. Remember, the temple had an inner court, which is where the men, the circumcised men would go. The outer court was intended to be for the nations to find out about God. Jewish nation wasn't concerned about the other nations at this point, and they filled the outer court with, it was like a market. It was like a bazaar. They had money changers, they had animals, and so there was no place for the nations to find out about God, and so Jesus drove them out. And so Jesus drove these, and he was proclaiming that the gospel is for all the nations. And so perhaps that's why these Greeks were you know, seeking to find out about Jesus and say, what does God have for the nations? But, but either way, what we have is Greeks coming to Jesus saying, I want to I see you. And the word for see is really interview. I, I presume they wanted to follow, or they wanted to at least be engaged about what does it mean to follow 
And that is what precipitates Jesus saying, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You've got to understand the context, right? The Greeks are coming forward. It's about discipleship. And then Jesus launches into this disclosure of who he is, a profound disclosure of what Jesus is. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now that hour, the word hour, is used throughout the Gospel of John. But the hour never comes. In chapter 2, his mother wants him to make wine at the feast at Cana. And he says, my hour hasn't come. The Jews tried to kill him in chapter 7, the Jewish leadership, and they couldn't kill him. And so Jesus interprets this and says, my hour had not yet come. But now the hour comes. So what is this hour? Well, in the context, I would assume the hour he's speaking about is his death. Right? Look at the next verse. He says, unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus is saying that the hour that has come is for him to die. Now, what I want to grip you is how do we understand this hour of death being an hour in which the Son of Man is glorified? How does death bring about glory? And I would simply say to you that Jesus is walking out perfect obedience to the Father. That Jesus is refusing any glory for himself, willing to humiliate himself, suffer, and die. Jesus will bring glory to the Father through his perfect obedience. That Jesus is acting in accordance with God's perfect will that he would die. We know this wasn't some political thing. We know it wasn't military. We know it wasn't evil circumstances getting out of hand because in verse 27, Jesus says, shall I ask the Father to save me from this hour? He says, no. He says, for this very hour I was sent. So God has ordained the Son to die for us, and the Son is perfectly obedient. The Son that was before all things, fully glorious, humiliates himself, to suffer and die. And in that act of obedience, both the Father is glorified, but as the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified in him and by him. It's profound paradox. It's to think of humiliation and glory to be together. It's hard to understand. You know what a paradox is? A paradox is not a contradiction. G.K. Chesterton said the paradox is a truth standing on its head. It's true. We just don't fully understand it. And, and, and we're helped in understanding it, though, by the term the Son of Man. That's how Jesus discloses himself. I'm the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man, if you remember, comes from, at least it's, it has its hand in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, it's an incredible scene. The Ancient of Days is on his throne. That's God the Father. And one like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, which is just unfathomable to think about, approaching God in that way, and he receives a kingdom of glory and power. It's an exalted title. It's a title of great glorification. That Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. That means that he is the one equal with the Father, reigning over all things. And yet, the Son of Man in the Gospel of John also has its hand in Isaiah 53. Think about when Jesus says that I am the Son of Man. I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That death and suffering is associated with the Son of Man. And so the Son of Man fuses the glory of Christ and the shame and the humiliation and the death of Christ. That is what Jesus has come to do. That is what was on his mind. 
as he enters this last week of ministry. Now, this is hard to grasp, I, I admit it. You'd think Jesus, the way things are going, keep ministry. Keep ministering. I mean, he's a Christian superstar. I mean, the crowds are following him. Get a preaching ministry. Write a book. Fill the stadiums up. And that's what we do, right? That's what Jesus should do. Just write a book and go on tour. But he dies. He dies instead. And it it brought me to great conviction over his act of obedience being glorious. Listen, the value of obedience... The value of it is tied to the one that you're obeying, the value of the one you're obeying. So if Jesus acts with perfect obedience unto the Father who is infinitely holy, then his act is infinitely valuable. I don't appreciate obedience. I often take the repentance route rather than the obedience route. I'll just repent later. But the obedience is glorifying to the Father, and the Father glorified the Son. That's the first thing I want you to see here, that in Jesus revealing himself, he's revealing that he has been glorified by his obedience. But secondly, Jesus is being glorified in this hour by reconciling men to God. You see this in verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know the nature of a seed. The fruitfulness of a seed is actualized in its death. So if I take a seed, put it in a jar, stick it on the shelf, it does nothing. But if you take a seed, put it in the soil, cover it, and it dies, it'll bear much fruit. So what Jesus is saying is, I am the seed. I am going to be buried. I am going to die, and out of my death will spring forth life. Jesus knew this. This is why he was going to be glorified. He would be glorified by us the fruit that is born out of his death. Now, in the next section in, the chapter, in chapter 12 of John, he explains how this happens. He says this, If the Son of Man be lifted up, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus is clearly speaking about the resurrection, or sorry, about the crucifixion, that if he is lifted up on a cross, he's going to bear the sin of man. So our sins are placed upon Christ. This is the gospel, people. And he... he endures, he absorbs, he exhausts the wrath of God for our sin on that cross. And that is how he will reconcile us to God. That is how any person moves from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, because Christ and Christ alone has both borne the sin and exhausted the wrath of God over that sin. That is the only way we will ever see God, is by faith in that glorious act. That's how he's going to draw all men to himself. Now listen, when he says, draw all men, you're thinking, does that mean like all, all men? Does, does it mean every single individual will be saved? No, 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 that's universalism. That was condemned as heresy centuries ago. What is he saying then? Well, I think he's saying this. Remember the context. It's Greeks coming to him. Greeks had no part of the covenant. Greeks had no part of the people of God. Greeks were totally outside the promises of God. And so when Jesus sees Greeks coming, he says, I will draw all men. He's saying all types of men, all types, Jews and Gentiles. They will all come to me. They'll all come to the Father through me. This is really just a a foretaste of what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 5. It says, they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll. This is our song to Jesus over what he's done. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, Jesus saying, I'll draw all men to me, means that all the nations will be gathered 
around the throne of God, reconciled because he has hung on a tree for us. So when Jesus is saying, this hour I will be glorified, he's speaking about the totality of his ministry, walking in perfect obedience to the Father and reconciling man to the Father. Now, friends, I want you to know that he will be glorified. I mean, he knows he'll be glorified. This act of great submission before the Father and reconciliation of men to God, it it was never in jeopardy as to being effective or ineffective. It was never in question. It was never in doubt. He says clearly, the grain of wheat will die and will bear much fruit. You know, even thinking about when he says, I will draw all men to myself. He is not in doubt as to the certainty of him receiving glory from us. It was going to happen. I don't want you thinking that Jesus came and offered the potential to be saved. And now it's kind of God sitting back just waiting to see the results of the work of Jesus. I hope it matters. I hope it counts to people. God's not wondering, is Jesus' death going to be effective? He gave the possibility of salvation. I hope people take it. That's not it. No, it's a definite atonement. He has saved people for the Father. It has to be that way. It has to be that way because he says it and because Jesus wouldn't leave. We don't have the ability to morally choose Christ. We don't look to a cross and see salvation. You don't look at the ugliness of death and find glory. That is absolutely unnatural. Jesus has to draw us to himself. He has to take what is bloody and we see worthy. We have to, you know, he takes what we see as weak and it's strong. What is failure, and he makes it victory. Jesus has to open our eyes to himself, and that's why we glorify him. We've, many of us have ignored him. We've failed to appreciate him. Some of us maybe have even hated him. But now the Christian here, you adore him, you treasure him, you worship him, and you want to glorify him. That isn't because you just woke up to it. He drew you to himself through the power of the Spirit. I mean, when you think about Easter, it is profound. Jesus is disclosing himself as the one who was perfectly obedient to the Father and is thereby glorified and glorified through the people that he draws to himself. Now, so I I think when these Greeks came to Jesus, I don't know if they expected all that. Um, I know that, that what Jesus then turns to do after revealing himself is he now calls for a response to those Greeks. So the Greeks heard that, and now Jesus, as you're going to see in 25 and 26, Jesus is calling for a response. Now, I want you to see this. And this is a difficult passage to preach, these two verses, because you can immediately write yourself out of the kingdom, or you can too easily write yourself into the kingdom. And what I mean by this is many of us have been raised in evangelical homes, and we think, I want to ask Jesus in my heart. And what being a Christian is, is having a cognitive belief in these propositions about the faith. In other words, if I believe Jesus came and he died for my sins, and if I just have belief that he'll save me from hell, I'm good to go. And you know, I hit this often from the pulpit because I feel like the culture we're in, and God has raised up this church and me preaching at this time to be in a season within the history of the evangelical church that we really don't understand discipleship. We understand decisionism. We don't understand discipleship. And what Jesus is going to get to in 25 and 26 is strictly discipleship. And it's a straight tonic. It is a strong word. And it is different than many of the things that you have heard inviting you to follow Jesus. 
This is an invitation to follow Jesus that I'll be giving to you. But it's a strong word. Really is different. Look what he says. So he has revealed himself. This is who I am. He is glorious. He's going to be glorified. Folks, all the nations will worship him. Every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. Every tongue. I don't care if you hate his guts right now. You will honor him and glorify him, even if it's with with clenched teeth. He will be glorified among all the nations. But the discipleship, being a disciple, is found in responding to what he has just disclosed himself to be. And here's what it is in 25. So I guess what I want you just just to beat a point up is I want you holding yourself now to these two verses. And I want you to look at where you are as a disciple. You know, being a Christian is mentioned three times in Scripture. Being a disciple is mentioned 269 times. So what do you think is the emphasis here? What is being a disciple? Well, we're about to find out. And it takes first in believing that Jesus is just who he disclosed himself to be. If you don't start there, forget discipleship. You won't, you'll never get it. You'll never be able to do it. You cannot do what I'm going to say you need to do if you don't understand that he's the glorious one, the desire of all the nations. You won't do it. You can't do it. Look at what he says. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, let me try to explain this because this is kind of this semantic contrast and, and we look at this, and we just glide right over it. And, and you really need to just put it in park and just stay here for a while. So whoever loves his life loses it. Now, this is what I would say is, is somewhat hyperbolic. It's a hyperbole. It's kind of an exaggeration to make a point. Obviously, whoever loves his life loses it. He's not saying don't love your wife or don't love your child or don't love your job, don't love the gifts of God. When he speaks about whoever loves his life, he's speaking about the person that has so centered their joy, satisfaction, pleasure on the things of this world, even if it's the people or the relationships in this world. But it is a love that is surprisingly missing of God. In other words, it's a person that says, my goal in life is to be safe or secure or have financial security or to be comfortable. It's the person that their lives are driven by today or next week or three years from now. It's an inordinate love for the things of this world. It's okay to love the world in the sense when it's seen as a creation and a gift of God. It's an inordinate love when you just think about my life and my comfort and my children and my wife and my family and my job and my position and my fame. When that is the center of your world, you're going to lose it. It's an inordinate love. It would be no different. Now, you would think... You would think me foolish if I run into my house, it is ablaze with flames, and I go and I retrieve an expensive, almost a priceless family heirloom that I could never get again. If I retrieve that, and if I came out and left my child in the corner of the room, ignoring him, you would say that's inordinate. It's fine to love heirlooms, but when you love an heirloom more than you love your own child, you got things all out of whack. And so when we love this world, and we don't love, have a passion, a growing desire for God, and we just love the world and the things of the world and the people of the world without God, we have an inordinate love. And here's what Jesus says, you're going to lose it. And the word that he has for lose is destroy. In other words, and it's, it's not a future threat, it's a present tense promise. In other words, 
it's self-defeating. The love for this life that you're pursuing, you will actually lose that which you are. You're losing the possibility of getting what you want. You'll never get it. You'll be the, you'll be the thing that chases the, the carrot on the string all the way around. You'll never get that life. You'll lose it. Now, this is what we're steeped in in Western culture, folks. You know that. In this culture, not just American, European culture, Western culture, we are living for our fame, our glory. We're living for ourselves. Many of us are just living, what am I going to do with my life? And, and those are good questions, important questions, but they have to be asked under the umbrella of God's grace. I think about um, some examples of this. So just that Powerball lottery just was won, I think, by three tickets. 640 million bucks or something like that. They should just give it to the government, frankly. But the, um, I was thinking about their lives, and now they have that, what they want, that security, right? But then this, this one newswire had a report of 10, the last 10 big Powerball winners. Their lives are ruined. This Jack Whitaker, he won the largest single ticket in West Virginia. I think it was $380 million. Within a number of years of winning that, I think it was in 2002, uh, he not only lost $565,000 in cash at a strip club, uh, his daughter and his granddaughter have died. Uh, he is being sued for $1.5 million of bounce checks. What's he doing? He's got $380 million. Is his life happy? No, it's ruinous. Or some of us aren't just looking for financial security. Some of us are looking for just our bodies. Those of us who are younger, it's very important to have the perfect body. That that is the goal of life, my hair, my body. I... I in the New York Times, it was reported that Jennifer Aniston, the Hollywood star, spends $400 a day on her body. That's $141,000 a year. Now, she may be beautiful. She may have a very sleek figure. By the way, I spend 5 bucks a month at Fitness 19, and this is what I get. So who's got the better deal working? You know I do. People are consumed, and, and, and don't kid yourself, it can happen in the church. Jesus can be used as a tool for your better life now, right? You love Jesus, and you have a better marriage. You love Jesus, and you'll have a better job. You love Jesus, you'll have better health. You love Jesus, and it leads to my self-fulfillment, my self-actualization, my self-promotion. That Jesus can be used to advance you in this life, as opposed to thinking about the next life. So, so what he's saying here is if you love your life too deeply, you will lose it. And that's why the corresponding, the contrast is you need to hate your life. But notice what he says. He says, hate your life in this world. Hate your life. And you'll keep it for eternal life. Now listen, obviously, again, it's that, hype, that um, hyperbole in the sense of we're not to hate life, but we're to hate life as a means of finding value and significance and security in it. That when he says hate this life, he is simply saying this, don't be willing to do things that seem foolish to the average person. That don't put the goals of your life above the goals that God has for you as a disciple. In other words, risk your life in this life for his kingdom. That's what a disciple does. A disciple is willing to, to toss life to the side if God's calling us to do it. Now think about Stephen Christie. They left the American dream. They went over 
the Far East to serve. They have lost their life. They hated this life in the sense that they chose, I don't want to pursue it. I'm going to pursue the call that God has put on my life. To hate your life would be to risk your business reputation to walk with integrity in the marketplace. To hate your life would be to risk your reputation in the community to take a stand for your witness on Christ. To hate your life would be to leave the comfort and the confines of this church and go with a church plant where it's going to be more difficult, where you've got to put yourself more on the line. That's what it means to hate this life, to do things that seem foolish to the world but make all the sense in the world to God. So that's the first thing. If we want to be disciples, if we want to respond to this disclosure of Christ, you have to change your mindset on the world. This world is a passing fancy, folks, and we don't want the the lusts of this world to preclude the call of God to be a disciple. Secondly, the next hard thing he says, because he's got hard and, and glorious things in this little section. The next thing is about serving. He says, look in 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Folks, to be a disciple of Christ, it requires following Christ. And following Christ is serving Christ and others. And the hardest thing here is you really have to put to death yourself. To serve others means you're not going to be served. And, and I think for an American, really for a Westerner, that's the hardest thing. You're not, that to be a disciple will often require times where what you want to do, you will not get to do. And you want to just lay it down. I'm going to serve this person. And, and the only way you can do this is knowing Christ who died for you. Otherwise, you want to be served. I mean, who here doesn't want to be served? I mean, we all do. We all do. But when you focus and consider Christ and the Son of Man, same language, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the call. I mean, your service may be in your home. It may be your spouse. It may be to someone in this church. It may be a neighborhood, someone in the neighborhood. The reality of it is you are confronted with this opportunity countless times a day to serve, to serve, to serve, and you know how you buck against it. And yet the disciple is saying, no, he has served me. I want to serve. But it takes the power of him having served you first before you can serve. It really is overcoming our self-interest and self our self-interest, um, like in Philippians. Do not consider yourselves better. You know, put your interest to death for the interests of others. So that's the second hard word. Change the view of your world. Right? We're going to live for the kingdom. That's what a disciple does in following Christ. Change your view of yourself. You're no longer going to seek that you're always being served and treated properly. I think about the service and ministry. What, what, what is struggling about verse 26, at least the first part, is a lot of people don't appreciate you. They won't thank you. In fact, they may rebuke you or they may chide you when you've tried to do something well and you haven't done it to their liking and then you get a rebuke rather than a thanks. But again, that's a revelation of your own heart. Who are you doing it for? If you're following the master and they don't appreciate you, that is disappointing, but it's not discouraging. You continue to press on. So being a disciple is one laying down your life, not loving this life, and also laying down your life in terms of serving. But here's the blessing. Here's the invitation that I think we have to be a disciple. Here's the sweetness that Jesus gives us. Number one, notice what he says here. He says that if you do die as that grain of wheat, you will bear much fruit. The disciple is fruit-bearing. He loves bearing fruit. Now, you're not going to save people 
in terms of propitiation, where you're bearing their sin and enduring the wrath of God. But you will serve by propagation. You're displaying the gospel as you lay down your life, and you will bear fruit. So your service for people done for the glory of God will cause them to see the gospel in you and turn to God. Now, you see this in some of the great Christian names of the past, like a a William Carey who goes to India. And now millions would attribute the origin of their faith to Carey bringing the message to India. So he dies. He dies to a life in England. He goes to India and he bears fruit. It's perfect walking out of verse 24. Right? Or Adoniram Judson to Burma. Th- hundreds of thousands will attribute their understanding of the gospel, really their hearing of the gospel to him bringing it. But it doesn't have to be on that big of scale. It can be the cup of cold water. Your service that may be small in terms of what I'm using as an example, but God still uses that to cause fruit to bear in the lives of other people. So the disciple wants to be fruit-bearing. But secondly, the disciple enjoys, thoroughly enjoys this idea of eternal life. Look at what he says. He says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, the word for life, in 20, the word life is used three times in one verse. The first two times, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. Eternal life, though, is a different Greek word because the life that he's offering is of a different order. It's, it's totally of a different... It's fellowship with God that, God, that Jesus Christ has no... He's not bashful about saying, folks, follow me because what you have following this life is so glorious. It's so beyond tracing out. It's so beyond measure that it will be worth it. You will be satisfied. You'll be happy. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards wrote. He's, a, of course, that great American theologian in the 18th century up in New England. He writes this about heaven, about this eternal life. He says, It is a comfort to think of that state where there is fullness of joy, where heavenly calm, delightful love reigns without alloy, where there are continually the dearest expressions of this love, where there is the enjoyment of those persons loved without ever parting, Isn't that a sweet idea? You don't have to be too old to begin to realize without parting is really sweet. He says, where those persons who appear so lovely in this world will inexpressibly be more lovely and full of love to us. And how sweetly will the mutual lovers join together to sing the praises of God and to the Lamb. In other words, folks, I'm calling you to think about what life will be like when you behold Christ. We don't give it thought And so when I read something like this, it seems so ethereal. It seems so misty, and it seems so hard to grasp, but it will be there. And and you want to think about it because you cannot be a disciple of Christ if you're not enjoying that life. I'm not talking golf. I'm talking the face of the one who by his word has created all things. And last, the disciple, and I still have yet to get my mind around this one, is encouraged towards discipleship through this last phrase in verse 26. If anyone serves me, so Jesus is stating a first-class condition, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, I don't understand what that means. I can be straight up with you. I don't don't get it. I'm almost embarrassed by it. I, I don't know how I would stand there and receive honor from the creator of the universe simply because I followed the one who opened my eyes to him. I, I don't get it. I, I don't know how will the Father of all glory honor you or me by being a disciple. 
I, I mean, just to ponder it alone takes me into galaxies I don't spend a lot of time in. And, and, and so just think about these. Folks, I'm trying to seed your minds with things that are immediately convicting now, but maybe in two days from now you're going to think, how will the Father honor me? And what an inducement and encouragement to say, yes, I want to lay down my life for Christ. And so as we come to this Easter week that we're about to celebrate, as we come to thinking through, we're going to have that service on Thursday night about considering the profound nature of Christ before his death. And then Friday, we look at his death. And and then all building up for that resurrection, rejoicing on Sunday morning. But this is what he's calling us to right now. These Greeks came and were seeking Jesus. I don't know what they did. They drop off the pages of history. We don't hear about them anymore. We don't know. Did they say, yes, I'm going to follow you. Yes, I'll be a disciple. Yes, I'll lay down my life. I will serve. I will look forward to the Father honoring me. Or did they just say, ooh, that's, that's like, you know, obviously they weren't committed enough to be circumcised to go the way of Judaism. What did they do? I don't know. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to this? I mean, some of you are walking out your discipleship strongly. I pray and trust that you're encouraged by that. And in fact, you have more fuel thinking about this disclosure of Jesus. Others of you, you're looking at your life and you're thinking, I do love this world. I really don't hate my life. I really am going for comfort and security. All the things that you said about the man that's going to lose his life, I'm doing. What am I going to do? Well, I would call for you to repent. I would call for you to ask for grace, to better understand and walk. The elders are here. Come forward after the service. Speak to us about these issues. There are some of you here that, Really, this is not impacting at all. You've read these verses. They don't, you know, if anyone says, I kind of serve, and you just are not going to deal with the text for its weightiness. You're just going to fly over it at a very superficial level and feel good and get on to the games later today. And I, I, would, just, I would just persuade you to rethink that. I would, I would beg you to reconsider that, that you would give time to this text. But where am I? Am I one of the Greeks? Am I going to slide off the page of history? Or am I going to be one of those 12, one of those disciples that the Scripture talks about? That's the choice before you. Let me pray for you, and then what we're going to do is have a time of prayer. For those of you who aren't familiar with this, what we do is just spend a few minutes praying in response to the Word. It can be a word of praise. It can be a word of confession. It can be a word of petition. I would just ask you to pray. It doesn't need to be long so that others may pray. I would ask you to pray loudly so that we can hear you and join with you. And, um, and then Ray will close us in that time of prayer. Father, thank you for the grace um, that you have given to us to be alive and hear this. Grant grace to us to discern the actual position of our heart on this text. And that we might move towards not being a decider of Christ, but a disciple of Christ.